Well, like Mandy said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to uh, welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to anybody who's new with us today. I see a few new faces and anybody who is uh, here for the first time in a long time. So good to have you uh, here with us. Also, special welcome to anybody who might be listening to us through our website or through our podcast. You're also welcome to come and worship with us here on Sunday mornings. Before I begin the message this morning, I do just want to mention that we are uh, currently in the midst. We just began year two of our building campaign. Uh, if you're new around here, you may or may not know that we were blessed to be able to purchase this space back in September uh, through the generosity of folks like you. And uh, we have been slowly uh, making this place our own with significant updates in, uh, in this room and in, in various classrooms and in the hallways. And just bit by bit, uh, because of your generosity, we're able to continue to make this dream a reality. And just about every week, I feel compelled to get up here and say thank you, uh, but also to invite those of you who are new with us to uh, join in uh, to what God is doing here. Uh, if you are interested in partnering with us to uh, continue the work that God has started here, you can simply feel free to come talk to myself or one of the pastors about what that might mean for you to engage. You say, hey, I've already made up my mind. What's the next step? You can simply just begin to give toward uh, the, the building campaign in a way that uh, God is leading you and your family, and we will be very, very grateful and glad for it. We've still got more work to do, and I just want to uh, say a special shout-out to those of you, all of, uh, all of those of you who have helped by showing up on Saturdays, staying late nights to make this happen. We are very, very grateful. We could not do this without you. So continue to pray for generosity. Continue to pray for God's blessing and favor to uh, be visited upon us. Amen? Well, let me begin the message this morning. Uh, a week ago, uh, last Sunday, uh, the news broke of a guy by the name of Robert F. Smith, uh, a tech uh, investor and America's richest African-American. He's actually a billionaire. He was asked to give the commencement address at Morehouse College last Sunday. And at the end of his address, Smith announced that he and his family were working on a grant to eliminate the student debt for the entire 2019 graduating class of Morehouse College. That's some 396 students. And as you can imagine, news like this spread like wildfire. Before I even left, some of my friends, one of them a Morehouse graduate, was texting me the link to this story that had broke before we even left the building on Sunday, and people began to quickly sort of do some math on this and realize that this gift, this act of generosity, would cost this billionaire some $40 million to pay off all the student debt of the folks who are graduating at Morehouse. Uh, the New York Times reported this morning that a sociology major went to his computer shortly after the commencement uh, ceremony and looked up the estimate of his student loans. And that one student's uh, student loans were something like $200,000 that he and his parents were planning, or maybe, or maybe not planning, uh, to pay back. And he's quoted in the New York Times as saying, this would have crippled me for life, referring to his debt. And maybe you can imagine, and maybe you have imagined, if you got over your own personal envy, for not being fortunate enough to be sitting in a commencement, your commencement ceremony, and some rich guy decides to eliminate your debt. But maybe you can imagine how in just seconds the lives of these students, and might I add their parents, have been radically changed forever 
because of this extravagant and complicated act of generosity. It might not be hard for you to imagine how this act of generosity has really changed the course of these folks' lives. It's uh, removed this encumbrance of debt, some of their debt in the six figures. It's opened up options. Their living situation might be different. They're, they're, uh, uh, they're staying with their parents or not staying with their parents for the next five, six, seven, or eight years. The possibilities are endless. It's not hard for you to imagine how a gift like this could change the course of one's life. And shortly after this news broke, my friend and colleague, my dear brother, Dr. Charles Montgomery, who pastors at the Columbus Vineyard, uh, Columbus, Ohio, he tweeted this, this is the closest thing to Christ's salvation I've ever personally witnessed. And the reality is, if you have eyes to see it, this, this is a picture of salvation. If, if you understand how the gift of salvation works, you know that this is this is a perfect human picture of how salvation works. Our sin, our separation from God, encumbered us by the debt of those choices and those sins that's a part of our humanity from the very beginning. And while we were yet in that sin, encumbered by the heavy, hefty price and the penalty of that sin, which is death and separation from God, Christ came and died for us God's payment for our sins, God's elimination of our debt. Christ came and stood in the gap for us. He took the penalty of our sin. He paid the price for our sin and rebellion, past, present, and future. Put that on his son Jesus, and our debt was paid by the work of the cross. And so in response to that gift we've been given, we have been charged to go and tell that news to anybody who will listen. Do you think these Morehouse students can shut up about this gift they've been given? You think there's any one of these students who haven't tweeted something, texted somebody, written on their blog, and is finding creative ways to introduce this gift into any conversation they have because it was a tremendous act of generosity, the picture for us of salvation. And I think this is an important uh, thing for us to focus on because sometimes we underestimate, we devalue the gift that we've been given, and even though we've been charged to tell others about it, we are quiet about it. We're silent about it. Or we decide that we get to pick and choose who gets to be told this good news or who gets to benefit from this gift of salvation. And I think that God is pressing us, not just as individuals, but as a church, to lean in to a healthy understanding of this gift that has been given us and the charge that we've been given to respond in obedience to what God has called us to. In order to illustrate that, I want to begin a new series this morning Uh, that I'm simply calling the book of Jonah. And as you probably guessed, we're going to spend some time in the book of Jonah uh, because I think the story of Jonah illustrates well our human reaction to God when he calls us to do something, particularly when on the other end of that assignment is telling other people about the hope that we found in Jesus. 
As I often do, I charge you, uh, because Jonah can be a familiar story to many of you, particularly if you grew up in church like me, uh, to lean into this because the Spirit of the Lord has something to say to us. And on this four-week journey through the book of Jonah, I want to challenge your presupposition that this story is simply a story about a dude and a fish. Rather, it's a story about a dude and his God. It's a story about a God and a perishing people that God wants to rescue. Make no mistake, the mega theme of the book of Jonah is the mercy of God. Got some interesting parts, some memorable episodes, but the mega theme is the mercy of God. Mercy is defined as compassion or forgiveness shown to someone whom it is in one's power to punish or harm. My friend Ben Hare, who preaches here regularly, says that mercy is the oil of the kingdom of God. Uh, He's hoping that we would draw a connection between uh, our car and oil, knowing, of course, that if you don't lubricate the engine well, if you don't feed your car oil, it will shut down. The same is true with the kingdom of God. The same was true with salvation and our relationship to God and his kingdom. Without mercy, the thing doesn't work. So the theme of the book of Jonah is mercy and how God enlists us to be agents of that mercy. And much like the rest of Scripture and much like these famous stories, we needn't look at this story and go, oh, look at Jonah. What a, what a klutz, klutzy guy. What a, what, a, what, a, what, what, what a dim-witted guy. No, we look at Jonah as if we're looking into a mirror. And what's true is that we won't necessarily see a flattering reflection of ourselves, but we must understand that this is a mirror we're looking to. God wants to speak to us. He wants to show us something as we faithfully take the next four weeks to look at the book of Jonah. I want to begin this series, obviously, in chapter 1. And so if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1, we're going to begin at verse 1. I'm simply calling this message the not-so-great escape. And if you're familiar with the story of Jonah, you know he gets a word from the Lord and decides that he doesn't want to do it. He's going to get away from God. He's going to run away from God. And I just tell you, we'll get into this, but I'm just going to tell you, if that's your lean, that's a bad idea, right? You can run, but you can't hide. The not-so-great escape, we're going to begin in Jonah chapter 1. While you find that in your Bibles, uh, let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the great opportunity I have to stand before your people and bring your word. I thank you in advance for the truths that you'll deposit this morning. I thank you in advance for the ways that you will call us higher as we look at this faithful story of Jonah and his interactions with you. Father, I know that in a room this size, there are a number of us who've chosen to do things our way, who've heard your call, who've heard your command, and in response, we decide that we're going to go in the opposite way. Father, I pray that you would arrest us with this truth this morning and shine some light on our path today. Father, put power on these words that you've given me to preach. Move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked the people are. 
But Jonah got up and went to the opposite direction, excuse me, in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. So the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this? He shouted, get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? They have some questions. Verse 9, Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it, they groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop this storm? Verse 12, Jonah says, throw me into the sea, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get the ship to land, but the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. Oh, Lord, they pleaded, don't make us die for this man's sins. And don't hold us responsible for his death, O Lord. You have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked up Jonah and threw him into the raging sea, and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by God, excuse me, by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Fascinating story, right? Familiar to some of you. And I think this story uh, perfectly illustrates some powerful truths. Now, before we get into the story this morning, it's helpful, dare I say, necessary for me to say that this story is not a parable. While we will draw some truth and some powerful application, this story is not presented to us as a parable or a made-up story to illustrate some greater truth. This is not a categorically didactic fiction in which a made-up story is meant to convey a powerful truth. This is conveyed to us as a story that actually happened. And if you were here a few weeks ago, you know that my, my, one of my sons told me to my face that he doesn't believe that this story actually happened. <laughs> and I get that, right? But, but whenever I encounter something sensational in the text, something hard to believe, I personally just take a trip to Genesis 1, right? And for the uninitiated, Genesis 1 is the story of how God spoke to nothing and created everything that we see. And every unbelievable aspect of the story, much of which includes some element of nature, some element of God's creation, shows, the story shows us that God, the creator, the architect of this, has mastery and command over creation. And if I can believe that God spoke to nothing and created everything that we see, it's not too much of a stretch for me to believe that God could command the sea to act a fool 
in pursuit of a man who is acting a fool. It's not too far of a stretch for me to consider that God commanded a fish that he created to swallow a man that he created in a sea that he created. And so I sympathize with your disbelief, but when I go back to Genesis 1, I don't have as hard a time. And so this isn't a parable, but this story does illustrate a, a common chain reaction that happens when God knocks on the doors of our hearts and gives us an assignment. We see God acting. We see Jonah responding and God responding to Jonah's response and, and God responding to Jonah's response to God's response and so on and so forth. This is a picture, friends, of who we are. This is a picture, friends, of how we are and it behooves us all to pay attention. And so as I jog through this text, hopefully you're able to see how we can be doing this dance with God that is futile, it's unhealthy, and we just simply can't win this game with God. And so I want you to ask yourself, where do you find yourself in this story? The first thing we see in this story is that God speaks. God speaks to Jonah, and Jonah gets his orders. Verse 1 says, the Lord gave this message to Jonah, Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. Now, if you're living in the ancient Near East at this time, you would understand that Nineveh was one of the worst and most notorious cities in the ancient Near East. These were pagans. These were immoral people. They were ruthless. They were powerful. They were violent. They were brutal. They were merciless. They were warriors. And uh, torture was... A, a, a favorite tactic of theirs to, to bend their enemies toward their desires. And my friend Jeff Heidkamp frames this as he was teaching on this passage years, years ago, uh, that the preach against Nineveh was not a controversial-like thing to do. And it's helpful to understand that Jonah is a prophet, which means he is commissioned by God to speak God's words, his messages, to the humans. And sometimes these prophets would come with good news. Hey, the Lord smiles on you. Good, goodness and blessing and Skittles and candy will come raining down on you because the Lord favors you. Yay, everybody loves that message. But most often, the message was, you keep messing up. The Lord's giving you opportunity after opportunity. Get ready. So God's prophet, taking God's word of rebuke and judgment, to a wicked city. It's not some anomaly. This isn't some trick play that God is calling. And if we want to use the sports analogy, like this is right, it's the first page of God's playbook. It's a totally predictable uh, 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 task that would be given to one of God's oracles, one of his prophets. Go speak on my behalf to wicked people and tell them that I'm going to get them. This isn't a curveball for Jonah. This is like what prophets do. So help this be relevant to all of us and to put this story on a lower shelf for all of us to grab hold of, it's important for us to realize that no matter where we are in life, who we are, what we have to deal with, how mature we are in our faith, whether we're married or single, rich or poor, black or white, whatever our defining characteristics are, this story illustrates that God 
is calling all of us to do something. He's calling all of us to do something. Some of us have mistakenly believed that we are a mistake, that we just sort of slip through the cracks. And while that might cause you to wallow in self-esteem, it also serves to sneakily let you off the hook of being a person of purpose. Let you off the hook uh, about being a person of willful intention, strategically taking left foot, right foot steps because you were created for a specific purpose. One preacher in Chicago says, I believe that people are born at the times that they are needed most. And if you are living and breathing, God saw fit to, to, to bring you into this earth, onto this planet. He has something for you to do. Here's the challenge. Often what we're called to do is something we'd rather not do. Often what we're commissioned to do, what we're purposed to do, what we're created to do is something that we simply would rather not do. It's a fact of life in the kingdom of God. And even if you are fortunate enough to be called to something that you would rather do, it's often the case that the means, that the method, that the timing, that the timeline, or what specific things that are wrapped up in that assignment is something that you would not choose for yourself or you, like Jonah, would choose instead to go in the opposite direction. This shouldn't be surprising, as the prophet Isaiah points out in Isaiah and the book of Isaiah, that God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Isaiah 55, verse 8. And it's our human instinct when faced with something we'd rather not do to run, to go in the opposite direction. And this is precisely what happens. God comes to Jonah, gives him his orders, and Jonah does what? He runs away. Routine prophet, given a routine assignment, Jonah's response is no. Did he say no? No. But his actions said no. Verse 3 tells us he got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket, went on board, hoping to escape the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. And for simplicity's sake, we must understand that Jonah was supposed to travel west to Nineveh. Instead, he hops on a boat and tries to go as far east as he possibly can. He is intentionally running the opposite direction from a God. And this is how you know Jonah is, is, is not himself. This is how you know he's so deep in his feelings that he's not even thinking straight. He's spoken for God. He's seen God wipe out entire cities. He's beheld the majesty and power of God. And yet in this moment of weakness, this moment of frailty, this pouty moment of like digging in his heels, he thinks that he can make an escape from God. Now, before we dismiss Jonah, I told you we're looking in the mirror. And so if we're looking in the mirror, it might be helpful and necessary to ask, what's Jonah's issue? Just what's his problem? And he probably has a whole list of problems, but what I can glean from the text, his main problem is he knew God too well. You say, well, preacher, what do you mean by that? He knew God too well. I told you. This, this is like God, this is, this, is what hap- this is what prophets do. They get words from God and they go give it. Like, why is he so thrown by this? Jonah didn't run 
Because he feared the wicked Ninevites. He didn't fear for his safety. He wasn't concerned about his reputation or being embarrassed. Jonah ran because he knew God would be merciful. God comes to him with assignment and God says, no, 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 no. Where do you want me to go? Nineveh? The wicked Ninevites? Murderous? Hateful? torturous Ninevites, you want me to go there? Yeah, you want me to give a, me- a message uh, uh, of judgment that you're coming, but God, I know you too well. I've read this story before. I go traipsing in to these wicked people to give them this message. They hear the message, their hearts turn to you, and you can't help but to forgive them. You can't help but be slow to anger and rich in unfailing love. I know you too well. And he tells God with his actions, get somebody else. He was afraid that God would be merciful. The only problem with this is that Jonah forgot one really important thing, and that is that he, he, he's just a mailman. I don't know if you know too much about mailmen, but... The basic reality is that they just supposed to drop the stuff off. They shouldn't be rifling through your things. They shouldn't be going, oh, no, 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 this, is, this contractor isn't reputable. I'm not going to give them this. Or this bill, this seems like a bill or an overdue notice. They, they don't want to see this. I'm going to. Or these people certainly aren't deserving of this package. I'll keep this one in the truck. Like the mailman is just supposed to deliver the stinking mail. Don't edit it. Don't look through it. Don't try to decide who gets it. Deliver the mail. The same thing Jesus told Peter in John 21. If you love me, Peter, what? Feed my lambs. Serve them what I told them to serve. What I, what I give you, the waitress, your waitress, bring it to the table. Don't edit it. Don't put any spices in it. Just deliver it. And some of us, this is where we live. We've gotten sideways with God simply because God has called us to something that we don't want to do. God has called us to someone or somebody that we don't like. Or maybe they don't like us. Or, if it's, or a terrible combination of both of them. You don't like them, they don't like you. And you've worked really hard to put as much space between them and you as possible, and God comes knocking one day, hey, go, go be nice to Sheila. Go invite Sheila and the bad kids to your kid's birthday party. Oh, Mark's been asking you to run with him on the trail in the morning. I know you don't like him, but go. I got some work I want to do in Mark's heart. And what I'm requiring of you for, for Mark's purposes, is that some proximity be, 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 be you know, that you be in, he be in proximity with a person of light. That he be able to witness the good and the glory, the work that I've done in your life. You can't do that by avoiding him every day. Go talk to Mark. Invite Sheila over. Go take a pie to those neighbors. And you say, God, maybe you don't know. I know you're omniscient and everything. I know maybe you're too busy to know. I don't like them. And word on the street, they don't like me. 
And so here we are, the male person that's supposed to be out on the route, we're instead in the male room sorting mail. And the Lord says, I said what I said. Jonah runs, doesn't like the assignment. He's at odds with this message. He doesn't like the people. But how many of you know, when it comes to God, you can run, but you can't hide. You can get on a boat, you can get on a plane, you can get on a spaceship. And the chain reaction continues because what happens next is God pursues. He pursues. And let me just say that God pursuing can be both a good and terrible thing. He pursues. What does this pursuit look like? Verse 4 tells us, But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm, and threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help, their gods for help, and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. God sent a storm to get Jonah's attention. And I can say a whole lot about this, but I got a lot more to share. My time's running out, so I will just say this. Some of you can stop binding the devil. <laughs> Some of you can get off your knees and putting oil and blood over the doorposts of your home. Like, this isn't the devil, right? Some of you it is. <laughs> but others of you, this is God. And all of his fervor, using all of his power and glory and might and splendor, he's pursuing you. The psalmist says, where can I go from your presence? What can I hide? And that's a comforting thought when you're in the midst of a storm that you didn't cause. But it is a terrifying one when the God of heaven, the Lord of heaven's armies, comes chasing after you. God pursues. I can't help thinking about my dear sweet mother as I ponder this, because my, my parents had a policy. The policy was wherever you cut up at, that's where you're going to get it. And for those of you who might not understand, cut up means act up, act fool. My mama said, wherever you show your behind at is where you're going to get it. And the message that they sent us was there's no place that you can go, that we can go together where you can think, I, I'm safe here. Mama would never get me in this place. We're on the highway. I, 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 Dad would never pull the car over. How many of you know? And I grew up at a different time. I've gotten weapons on the sides of highways and aisle three, four, five, six, seven of any store, you name it. I, was, I didn't have the misfortune. Some of my friends and some of my siblings got weapons in front of their classrooms. And let me tell you, whatever you did, to get a spanking in front of your classroom. You didn't do that again too soon, right? What was the message? The message is and was, there's no place you can go where my hands can't reach you. There's no place where you can go that's too put together, that's too uppity for me to deal with my kids as I form Christ within you. 
as I help to show you where the boundaries of life are. And the truth is, still stands, particularly in God's economy, there's no place that you can go where God can't get a hold of you. And initially, Jonah's response to God pursuing him, it's not a good one. Because we see in verse uh, 5 or so that Jonah is sound asleep. I mean, they're trying to sort through which luggage they don't need. They're trying to say, okay, well, well, we don't need that bag. Throw that one over, and and let's roll, and let's lighten this. And I just picture Jonah just snuggled up, sleeping in the hold of the ship. The captain goes down and said, bro, do you not feel this turbulence? Like, are you not bothered by this? We're playing to our gods. We're casting lots. We're like, you know, we got the Ouija board out. We're trying to figure out what's, what's the cause of all this. But Jonah is, again, deep in his feelings. He, he's indifferent about all of this. And that's a really dangerous place to be. I'm also struck, and again, don't have too much time to camp out here. I'm struck by how much collateral damage is caused by disobedience. Striking to me how as a pastor, when I have to go talk to a man because he's gotten beside himself and he's acting a fool. He wants to tell me that this is his business. He just needs some time, and I have to sort of in a figurative sense, turn his neck so he can look at his wife's face. And then turn his neck again so he can look at his kids that he's disappointing. And all the people that he's letting down by not bringing his money home, by placing his hope in something other than Jesus, by giving in to some addiction or some besetting sin. Look at all the trees that get crushed when your tree falls down. Jonah has not only taken his own life in his hands, but the moment he boarded that boat, he put all of those other people's lives in jeopardy. He's asleep in the hold of the ship as all hell breaks loose. In a word, he's indifferent. And this is a sure sign that things have gotten bad in your life, is that you're trying to run away from God, and you're, at least in the beginning stages of it, indifferent to the havoc that is causing and the havoc uh, uh, indifferent to the means in which God's using to, to get your attention. Uh, to put it plainly, Ch- Jonah chapter 1 does not paint our friend Jonah in a positive light. It, don't judge him, though, on, on chapter 1 because there's a few more chapters. Uh, don't, don't, don't resign that he's a bad guy. He, he's just thoroughly human. Like me and like you. I told you, we, we, we are looking into a mirror. And if there is a, a shining moment for dull Jonah, it comes around verse 9. And in response to God's pursuit, Jonah finally yields. He finally yields. He finally taps out. Verse 9, Jonah answers... I'm a Hebrew. They asked him a barrage of questions to try to get to the bottom of this, to cast lots. And the lots point to Jonah. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. He's coming clean. The sailors were terrified. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you 
This is an interesting question. Okay, since we found out it's you, what should we do to you, fella, to save our lives? And, and verse 12 is such a beautiful turning point moment because Jonah says these beautiful words. He says, throw me into the sea and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. And I hope you can see the beauty in those words. I hope you can read between these lines and see just what's happening in this story. Jonah sees, seemingly for the first time, that I'm the problem. What a beautiful discovery. What a hard place to get to without God's intervention. What a hard and difficult, challenging place to arrive at on your own. And God knows this, which is why he is a pursuing God. Why he knows how to manipulate the elements and the people in your, in your life and the, the, the elements to get your attention because he, he needs for us to arrive at this conclusion that I don't need to bind the devil. I don't need to buy more oil. I don't need to pray harder. I need to come to the conclusion that it is my own folly and fickleness and rebellion and sinfulness that has this storm raging in my life. Now listen to me very carefully. This is not the case always. And many of you are dealing with storms. You, you are the sailors. The storm's been brought to you. Somebody else's bad decision, somebody else's rebellion, somebody else's mistakes and bad breaks has brought the storms and winds of life to bear on your life. And so this shouldn't be internalized for everybody, but some of you rascals. (laughs) The Lord is shaking and stirring and lapping, you know, buckets of water into your boat so that you might humbly reach this conclusion that I'm the problem. It's me. It's my rebellion. This is a major turning point, and some of you have come to this recently. Others of you are sitting here with your arms crossed, willful defiance because you refuse to do as Jonah did and say, throw me overboard. I'm the issue. I'm the culprit. these sailors, bless their hearts, they're trying to row. They're trying to do other stuff just to save his life. I don't want to throw this guy over, but eventually they relent. And at the beginning of this, you know, earlier they start praying to their gods, trying to figure things out. But right now it's clear who they should be praying to. They say, Lord, we understand this guy works for you. Don't hold it against us, but we're about to throw this joker overboard. And again, I don't have time to camp out on this, but I think there's some beauty in this image of these these pagan sailors praying to God. Jonah didn't have any tracks with him. He wasn't a man on mission. He wasn't preaching the gospel on board of this boat. But these guys beheld God's glory and his command over nature, and they knew, they knew, that there's only one true God. Salvation comes to these guys. But verse 16 tells us that they threw, I'm sorry, verse 15 tells us they threw Jonah overboard, and in an instant, the storm sought. Jonah yields. He's thrown overboard. Now, there's one more 
very important step in this sort of chain reaction that happens, at least in chapter 1. And that is that God rescues Jonah. He rescues Jonah. Speaks to Jonah. Jonah says, no, I'm not doing that. He runs. God pursues. Jonah yields. He's thrown into the sea. And something beautiful happens. God rescues him. Verse 17 says, now the Lord had arranged, again, more command over nature, a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. And let me just tell you something. I, for many years, even as a student of the scriptures and a student of the Bible, I've seen this great fish simply an object of God's judgment. I've seen this as a punishment. I've seen this as punitive. But I think it's, it's necessary for us to see this great fish as a glorious vehicle of God's mercy. I think we have to understand, while none of us want to spend three minutes in the dank belly of a whale or a big fish, that Jonah here is no match for the seas. That even experienced sailors, seamen, would stand no chance in the vastness of the sea. Expert swimmers would stand no chance in the choppy waters of the sea. No human is any match for these great waters. And I think it's a mistake. I think it's a mistake to reduce this fish as God's chastisement. And even if you want to camp out there, I would concede only to say that God chastises only those he loves. And that this pursuing God is pursuing us not intentionally with wrath and wanting to rain, you know, lightning bolts down on our head. The Psalms tell us that God is pursuing us with what? Goodness and mercy. Another version says goodness and unfailing love. And so his pursuit of us is salvific in nature. His pursuit of us, if we allow it, if we yield, is redemptive. And so we need to see that this great fish that swallows Jonah is a profound and generous act that demonstrates the mercy of God. The mercy of God. And Jonah has entered three days sequestered in the belly of a fish. Anybody want to sign up for that excursion? He's in solitary confinement, alone for a nice long time. He's got no phone, no reception, no Netflix, no appetizing food, no Instagram. He's alone with his thoughts. He's alone with his God. He's alone with his assignment. He's alone with God's mercy. He's alone with a pursuing God who's given him three days and three nights to think about the things that have transpired. This is the mercy of God. The mercy of God who, without God's mercy, could let the sea swallow him. There's no book of Jonah. And if somebody were pressed to write it, it would just have one chapter. 
So this book begins and ends, I'm sorry, this chapter begins and ends with the mercy of God. Jonah pursued and swallowed by a fish because God is merciful. He's in touch with our humanity. He knows our tendencies to run when things aren't going our way. And because he loves us, and because he loves that wicked city of Nineveh, he's going to give Jonah some time to think about it. Maybe a little bit of time to decide differently. And I wonder what the implications might be in your own personal life in this moment as you sit and listen to me today. And as I land this thing, worship team, you can come up. Some of you don't like your orders. And if I were just to dig a little deeper, I would say some of you don't like your life. It feels like a mistake. You can't make sense of it. You haven't reckoned with the truth that God doesn't make junk. And if he made you, you can't be junk. God is intentional. He's purposeful. And if you were created and given something to do, and there's great value in the carrying out of those assignments. Some of you don't like your orders. Some of you despise what and who God has called you to. And so you identify with Jonah. You identify with wanting to run away. And others of you, if you're honest, you are in like you're escaping at the moment because you don't find yourself in the thick or in the throes of what God has ordered you to do, what God has commanded you to do. And I come this morning with a faithful message that you could take or leave. You will yield one way or the other. You will yield and do this the easy way or the hard way. Or should I say, you will do it the hard way or the harder way. Scriptures tell us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You will yield, friends, either on this side of heaven or the other. I feel like I need to tell you that, but I also feel like I need to remind you that the plans that God has for you are good, even though they don't feel good. But everything God instructs and every God thing that God sets before us is for the good of humans and for the greater glory of God. That you were created by God and for God, and as Rick Warren says, your life simply won't make sense until you come to that realization. Who among us today is running from God? Who among us is attempting this not-so-great escape? That God in his mercy would send the sweaty preacher down here today to warn you, to encourage you, to urge you towards saying yes, because on the other end of that assignment is something good, something glorious. And for those of you who feel stuck in rebellion, stuck in the stalemate with God, like, like you'll say uncle before he does. There's certainly more to the story. We'll pick it up next week. But as we worship God today, I want you to be honest with the Lord and honest with yourself. I pray that the Spirit of God would tenderize us so that the seeds that are sown today would go deep into the soil of our heart so that it would bear the fruit of obedience 
and we'd be changed by it. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you arrest us with the truth. Thank you for the reminder that the plans you have for us are good. Lord, may the cry of our hearts this morning and every morning be, Lord, as John Wimmer, the founder of the vineyard, used to say, Lord, we are just, we're but change in your pocket. Spend us the way you want us to spend us. For those of us who are running, for those of us who are rebelling, for those of us who are disgruntled with our assignment, Father, I pray that you would bring a supernatural peace today, a a supernatural awareness, a supernatural contentment with who you've made us to be. And Father, may our hearts burn with mercy for those who are waiting to receive from us. May our hearts burn with mercy. May we remember who we used to be before somebody obeyed you and came to us. Father, may this week be a week filled with just tons of episodes of us yielding, yielding, yielding further to the plans that you've set before us. Come Holy Spirit, do the heavy lifting as we worship you today. We ask these things in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen.